I always think about design as a problem, right? I have a problem in front of me I need to solve, but it's very uncommon that the first solution is going to be the right solution. It's iterative. So it's like you have to think about that solution and then like the 10 iterations after it that you're probably going to have to go through. So it's very difficult to just say, oh, yep, check the box. I got that one on paper on to the next one. It's just uh, not reality usually. So um, I do try to... um, shut down in the evening when I can, but it's usually for a small amount of time and there's almost no time where I'm not thinking about design. (laughs) I'm pretty sure Danae just described everyone's process while solving a problem. There's always more than one option that we can go with, which makes our to-do list somewhat harder to get through. So how do we combat that to get our work done? And how do we make time for ourselves to rest? We talk about that, and as always, so much more on this week's episode of The Story Podcast. While story invites us to ask powerful questions, your life and your story are shaped by the questions you ask. Where is your curiosity pointing? What is the story that you ache to tell? The only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. To be a writer, we have to sit down and we have to do the work and we don't get up until it's finished. Your greatest work may not be seen by millions of people. Keep making anyway. Rise up, artists. Your canvas is the consciousness of this generation. The only hope we have are the stories we tell. Stories not bound by what is possible. We are proud to be storytellers. On a trip to the West Coast, I had the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with Danae Doherty. I currently am the managing principal of Visioneering Architecture, so I... um, just lead the design team nationally and take both the design um, leadership role as well as an overall management role. Uh, But I basically started as an intern here and kind of worked my way up through through the ranks, but also as I was in school, um, I was finished my undergrad training and graduate school over the course of those 12 years. So there's been a lot packed into those 12 years of experience here. But yeah, started off as an interior designer while I was an undergrad um, and then did that for probably the first four or five years here. Um, went to graduate school for architecture and then um, kind of moved into an architectural role here and then went from kind of a studio director to a regional director and then landed in this managing principal role. So it's also new for me. So we're still kind of figuring out exactly um, all that it encompasses. But yeah, it's been an interesting ride over the last 12 years. So. Danae is a managing principal at Visioneering Studios, one of the coolest companies I'm aware of. There, she and her team work to create spaces that tell stories. 
Uh, everything is done through this storytelling lens, and she possesses extensive knowledge of all the project phases from concept to construction with prior experience in retail, hospitality, high-density housing, education, and civic design. And she is passionate about the next generation of design thinkers. I was so excited to be able to sit down and learn more about her journey as a designer and dive into her creative process as a storyteller. What's fascinating to me about your role is that you are both an artist and a manager. Yes. And in so many people's minds, that would drive them crazy. Yes. Because they have to be both creative and, I was going to say responsible, but I think, you could be, <laughs> <laughs> I think you could be responsible as a creative. It's just that you have to create, but also do all the things that sometimes a lot of artists aren't known for being. Yeah. So how, how do you manage being both a great manager and a great artist? It wasn't easy, and now that I look back on it, I've actually wondered, like, do I lean more one way or the other? Like, was there some sign, you know, early on that I was on a management track or a creative track? Because if you asked me 10, 15 years ago where I saw myself, I was always in um, fine arts, creative arts. I would never have thought, like, wow, you're going to be a manager one day. But I think it's all in the way you think about it because for me, um, it's less about, I'll say, quote-unquote management and I guess more about um, leadership. Um, so when I think about the management portion, there's so much creativity that can go into how you work and integrate in a team and how you can problem solve creatively rather than just like it being about spreadsheets and, you know, oh, I've got to make sure these people are at the right place at the right time. Um, so it's almost anticipating like, here's the design problem we need to solve and then you know, all the pieces that we need to put together in order to solve it. So I'm almost feel like it's more about creatively managing the pieces that make the project successful rather than like managing schedules, although that's part of it as well. Danae's a creative person herself, so she's got a pretty good idea of how to manage a team of artists. She can help manage the artistic process because she can sympathize with how the process is affecting people in the middle of it, both on the good days and, well, the not so good days. Are there ever days when you walk in and there is no creative energy? Yeah, I think that's a real thing. I think that um, there's this like design fatigue that can happen when we're so taxed with wanting to come up with an, something creative or, or a different solution or, or the right solution or something that, you know, is quote unquote innovative, which, you know, isn't necessarily a word I love to use, but that's kind of like the challenge is like, how can we do something different today or better than the last time? And how is this going to be, you know, um, a better solution than the one we had yesterday. And I think that a lot of fatigue can come with that where it's just taxing to feel like you're always need to come up with the next big thing or in order to solve the problem. So I think that um, that's a real thing. It's definitely something that we've experienced, but um, I think that that's part of being in the creative, you know, world and operating in that world, I don't think that's unique to architecture. I think writers experience that, you know, graphic designers, musicians. I think that um, that when that happens, though, I feel like that's just you're just moments away from potentially a huge breakthrough if you kind of 
don't get discouraged by the fatigue. That's kind of the problem is like you get so fatigued that you just are like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to think about a new solution. Or you just got, are like complacent then. You're just like, oh, I'll just keep chugging along and doing the same thing because I don't want to push myself to think about it any differently. Um, but for those of us who can push through, and I think that's what's great about a team environment where you have lots of people on the team, because I also think the seasons are different for different people. So if you have one team member who's maybe in that, you know, experiencing that fatigue, and then you've got three other people who can come around them and you start to inspire one another again, because maybe you're out of ideas or fresh thoughts on something, but you've got three other people who are coming from it from different angles that that then, you know, they bring something up and it reinvigorates you because it starts getting you to think about things differently. So for me, that's really exciting when I see that around our office. Um, we work in an open office environment exactly for that reason. We want to encourage people to be constantly sharing ideas and talking about how can we do things differently and how what's a better solution to this. And by having that ability to share knowledge, um, I think it comes to better solutions, but it also helps us get through or break through if you're the person who happens to be, you know, in the valley that day in terms of, mm -hmm. like, I don't want to think about anything creative for the rest of this year. What about so. for you personally, though? Is there something that you do that can usually help reinvigorate you? or Yeah, and I think I go through seasons. So, like, this last year, what's really been great for me um, is, you know, I've spent – I kind of never had any other idea. Like, I didn't want to be a princess or a rock star or anything like that growing up. It was like, I wanted you to be an artist. I just, one. well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I didn't have to put that much effort into it. But um, I just always knew, like, from being artist to, to, early, you know, 20 years old, I met the right person at the right time who was like, you should be an architect. And I was like, what's an architect? Like, what do you, how do you even do that? And what is it, by the way? And <laughs> so he kind of told me what it was all about. And I was like, that's great. I get the science of creativity. I get the artistry of creativity. I get to do this all in one place because fine arts, while I loved it, it didn't have the like practical for me, like the practical kind of formulaic, how do I figure out how to construct or make something. So the engineering aspect, at least for me, wasn't quite coming together in the art I was doing. So, um, you know, came to decide, okay, architecture made sense. It combines all those things together. So I've been doing that, interiors and architecture now for 12 years. And it, this last year, I kind of hit one of those valleys, if you will, where I was like, wow, 12 years. I'm not even mid-career yet. And it's like, is this have is this <laughs> what it's going to be for the next you know 20 years of my career and did you want to quit there were times i really thought about it i was like maybe this is as far as architecture is going to take me and I, I need to look for another creative outlet for you know what's next for me um and then over the last year, though, I really felt a reconnection with, with architecture and interior design, um, particularly in some opportunities where I've gotten to do some things on small a smaller scale, some event work, and also um, some environmental graphic work. Um, and that's just totally um, reinvigorated me because for me, I love the idea of the comprehensive project. And Historically, the master builder, the architect who like built the project, kind of thought about it comprehensively was normal. 
and the the industry has changed very much since then. The design of architecture, everything has become very compartmentalized where you have specialists that are just doing just one slice of the project. And the architect almost becomes this master coordinator, if you will, more than anything. They're just making sure all the pieces keep moving together smoothly. So for me, being able to get back to almost this idea of working on a project comprehensively where I, I get to work on the overall design, help put it together, and then get down also to like the the layers of furniture and environment and graphics and all of that has been really um, exciting for me. And it's given me a renewed sense of passion, if you will, about um, thinking about the whole project. And um, so we've worked on a couple of projects this year where I've gotten to stay more plugged into that. And it's been really great. Um, I think part of what we were just talking about where I've got like this dual role of both kind of being a quote-unquote manager and also a creative, there tends to be periods where you're like, well, you're doing a lot more managing than creative work. Uh And that in itself for me, um, while I enjoy that, it also isn't always satisfying the, the creative passions I had. So I have to always keep it balanced where it's not going one, shifting too far in one direction where I'm only doing you know, project management or team management work and not ever um, having that opportunity to also stay plugged into projects. So for me, being able to strategically pick the right projects um, to stay involved in has really helped keep me um, engaged, but also keep me out of that valley of like not wanting to come into work (laughs) or like being so fatigued with like the decision making of management and not having the creative part. So yeah, it's been, that's kind of how I've managed with um, keeping my own passions alive here. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Danae says that learning to balance creativity and management is always a struggle. But to hear her say it, it's less about balance and more about combining, finding a both-and solution. How can you make management itself a creative experience? Danae says she's getting to the point where she's pretty much always creative. Are you creative 24-7? Like when you're in the shower, are you designing a room inside your head? Oh, man, I'm thinking about how I'd like to remodel my bathroom usually. (laughs) So that's always the kind of, I'll say the curse of the creative, especially if you're in architecture or interior design is like, even if I remodel my bathroom three months later, I'll be thinking about how I should remodel it again because I don't like the way it looks anymore. (laughs) So that's just, it's like makes it really difficult to be comfortable in your own home, which I've literally had this conversation with my husband. He's like really bummed that I'm like, go home and I I can't be comfortable because I'm like, we should change that and I need to change that. And, you know, I don't like the way that looks anymore. So it's been a challenge. But yeah, to answer your question, it's almost 24-7. I do find some um, ways I'm almost embarrassed to admit, but there's like silly games on Facebook once in a while. I'll just be like, I need to unplug. What's like the thing I can do that I won't have to think about design in any sure. way, shape or form. So, so that that's like unofficial design, right? Like yeah. it's, it's not a work project that yeah. you have to design your bathroom. No. Um, so at what time of the day are you waking up and thinking about the project at work? Do you have a morning routine that you go oh, through? Or do yeah. you purposefully turn that off until you get to the office? No. What's your morning like? 
Yeah, I wish, um, do I wish I could turn it off? I think um, for me, and whether this is, you know, other designers or not, or should be other designers, it's very difficult for me to turn off um, thinking about design, whether it's work or otherwise. Um, If I'm at at home in the evening, I'm either replaying what happened, what I was thinking about that day, or I'm thinking about what I should do the next day. Um, when I get up in the morning, I'm already thinking about, as I prepare for work, I'm already thinking about what I need to do when I'm at work. I think, I always think about design as a problem, right? I have a problem in front of me I need to solve, but it's very uncommon that the first solution is going to be the right solution. It's iterative. So it's like you have to think about that solution and then like the 10 iterations after it that you're probably going to have to go through. So I am constantly thinking about where something's currently at and then trying to anticipate all of the problems with that current solution. Or if this thing happens, how is that going to affect this other thing related to the design? And for me, it's because I'm thinking about space and how it's going to be used and also the construction of space. Did something I design, um, is it going to be able to be constructed properly in the field? And if not, what's the plan for how to make it work if something doesn't go right? So um, there's all of this contingency that has to be thought about um, constantly. So it's very difficult to just say, oh, yep, check the box. I got that one on paper on to the next one. It's just... Uh, not not reality usually. So um, I do try to um, shut down in the evening when I can, but it's usually for a small amount of time, and there's almost no time where I'm not thinking about design. <laughs> the curse of the creative, I suppose. Sure. Yeah. No wonder you were tired this I year. I know. <laughs> What's yeah. interesting is that you know, you you talk about this constant desire to renovate your own house every yeah. three months, but that also lines up with one of your other passionate topics about consumption. Yeah, you maybe want to talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, um, what I've noticed a lot, and what I've been really interested in, um, is this idea of consumption and how it applies to design, and not just architecture specifically, although it can apply to architecture, and that's on a, a heroic scale. I mean, you're talking about a massive scale when you talk about consumption and architecture, but also how it applies to other um, design genres, so fashion, product design, furniture design. Um, I think culturally, um, you know, we've gotten to a place where in a lot of cases we are making decisions with our wallets. Basically, um, how we value things is determined by how much does it cost. Um, And I want to try to understand design differently, which is whether it's fashion or it's a product or it's architecture, um, is the bottom line dollar amount of that um, indicative of what the value should be? And and should we, can we rethink um, about those things so that the, we're not, dri- the value isn't driven by uh, monetary cost, it's driven by something else. And that may mean that it's not the least expensive solution or the least expensive option. It may 
be something. It may be something that monetarily costs more, but the long-term value is greater because of what um, it accomplishes. So um, for me, I've been thinking about, you know, just as a consumer myself, my own consumption habits. So whether it's redesigning my bathroom 15 times in one year or um, replacing my wardrobe 12 times in a year, um, you know, what am I doing personally as a, as a, you know, a contributor to society um, that is adding to the consumption problem, but also as a designer, how can I make better design choices for myself and then hopefully for um, the people we work with, our clients, that um, doesn't perpetuate the ongoing problem or cycle of consumption, um, which has to do with sustainability as well. So for me, it was like, you know, do if you think about clothing or um, uh, furniture on a smaller scale, there's this idea that, you know, cheaper is better. I can buy 15 shirts for, we just had this conversation, do you buy 15 shirts a dollar a piece or do you buy one shirt um, that's $50 and it lasts you five, six, seven years? You're probably more likely to fix the button if it falls off than on the dollar shirt that you're just going to throw away. Um, on the furniture scale, the same thing. If, you know, we don't have this culture of heirloom anymore, like that's kind of disappeared where 50 years ago, you know, 60 years ago, our parents and grandparents would have saved for five years to get the furniture set they want and it would have got passed down um, and it wouldn't have been an heirloom. And now we have, you know, Ikea where you can buy a coffee table for $10 and if the leg breaks, you're obviously not going to pass it down to your kids. You just put it on the sidewalk and the, <laughs> you know, the trash truck picks it up and you go buy another one for $10 and you do the same thing again in a year later. So kind of this cycle of like use it for a single purpose. So um, I've been thinking a lot about single serve design where we have this one item that's used for a very short amount of time. It has a short lifespan, a, a very small price tag. It has no use anymore. We throw it away. We just replace it with a new one. And what's that doing, um, you know, to the environment as a whole? So all this stuff has to go somewhere. It's not being recycled, so it's going to the landfill. Um, and then what does it do to us, you know, internally where we just, we the value we hold for, you know, things, possessions is, is almost um, non-existent anymore. Um, but if you think about it on the scale of architecture and um, interior design, we have um, kind of a, a history or a culture of, like, well, we'll just eat up more land. We need more space. We'll, we'll put houses down in these um, untapped green fields, you know, habitat destruction, deforestation, all of these issues. And then in the meantime, we have all of these um, previous sites that are sitting in the middle of towns decaying because no one wants to develop them. Um, they're uh, brownfield sites, so basically they're contaminated. It costs too much to redevelop, so we'll just let them sit there for another 100 years and decompose, um, bringing you know, the value of the neighborhood that they're anchoring down with them. So um, for me, I think of that on the you know, single-serve design on the scale of architecture is, is a huge problem that I think being a responsible designer can mean not just, well, I got a new piece of land, let me build a building that responds to sustainability. Well, is that, should we even be building there to begin with? 
you know, is that's the first question that we might want to ask. Is there another site that makes more sense? And it may cost a little bit more if you think about um, it in monetary terms, but the long-term value of taking something that's basically dead, you know, and dying and reinvigorate it, redeem it and reinvigorate the surrounding community by choosing that site as opposed to an easier site that may cost less to develop. Um, it just seems to me the value there is so much greater. But that goes back to the question whether it's on the scale of fashion or product or architecture is of what we value. And if what we value at the end of the day is the cheapest price possible for any of these items, then we're not going to choose to go into a site that needs extra care to bring it back to life. So well, it's a far more compelling story, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea of, first of all, stories without conflict aren't very interesting or memorable stories. And so it's not a huge story in tearing down some trees and constructing something from scratch, but taking an old building that had a previous story and playing a redemptive role and giving it a new story. Like that's a really beautiful picture. And ironically, I, I can tell why you value that because it's, it's a lot of what visioneering is all about. You guys talk a lot about spatial storytelling and that every space tells a story, even sometimes if it's not intentional or not, whether you meant for it to tell one, it's probably still telling a story, right? And it may not even be the one that you were hoping it would tell. Maybe talk a little bit in closing about that idea of spatial storytelling, the story of space. At Visioneering, that's really been kind of the heart of of why we do this and and why we think design and space is important is, um, you know, the space is not just to create a place for me to be at or for you to be at. It's basically the canvas or the background where stories can happen. So there's one way to think about spaces. Well, I can just tell my story here. So let's say a branding approach or an environmental approach where, you know, we're, we're helping, we're using space to communicate a story. But beyond that is the space supports and becomes the backdrop for other stories to happen. And for me, that's the most compelling part of what we do is um, being able to provide the space where other people's stories can um, start to develop and, and kind of evolve. And even with the interactions that happen from where you have these clashes between one person's story and another person's story because they're um, creating these relationships in these spaces. So there's a couple reasons why I think um, storytelling within a space is interesting. One is just being able to tell the story of the space itself, but also being able to be um, kind of this canvas or this backdrop for what other types of stories might be told. Danae says that's the trick really, not just to design a space that looks good on paper, but to be able to explain why this specific space for this specific story. What are you trying to say and what stories are you hoping to tell and have told with the space you're creating? That's the difference between just knowing what looks cool and being an actual artist. Do most of your clients come to you with the story they want to tell, or is that a process that you guys are writing with them? And if so, what kind of exercises do you guys do for that? 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think some clients come and they have a story that they don't even realize, mm. you know. So sometimes we we work with clients who have worked together for a really long time and it's it's like you just get used to being together as a leadership team or, or as an executive team and you're kind of just like, oh, well, I just have worked with them so long we already know. We know what the story is, you know what I mean? And that it's like you haven't really revisited what the story really is in a while. So maybe that was the story five or ten years ago, but it's evolved quite a bit since then. So I think to answer your question, a lot of times there may be people who come in and they either don't know what the story is or they think they know what the story is. And by the time we've um, spent a few months with them, we come to find out that the story may be very different than how they remember it, but it's still their story, right? Like we're not telling them what their story should be. We're just listening. And then as a having a listening ear and an open heart to what we're hearing through the, um, the workshops we do, it helps us capture more clearly what the story is so that we can then um, use that story to inform what the ongoing story could be in the design. So we do a workshop basically where one of the best or one of our most um, interesting parts of the workshop that most of us would say would be our favorite is we actually do what we call campfire stories. So we have um, the team with whoever we're working with, um, we'll have a team of maybe 15 to 20 people representing that organization. And we ask them to draw, and these are not typically artists, so <laughs> we ask them to draw. You'd be surprised what we've seen, but all really awesome. Um, we, we basically build their storyboard, and we ask them to draw a high-impact moment um, from their experience with that organization, whether it's positive or negative. Um, so it's not always, you know, the best, highest, brightest point of their experience. Sometimes it's a really hard time that they went through. And um, we put them all up on the wall and we basically build their storyboard and each person shares with the group what their high impact moment is. And you'd be surprised sometimes by how many people are, are just you know, brought to tears. There, it's, it becomes a really emotional, um, inspiring event for um, the people that are able to experience that to share these moments and then um, help create and feed into what this overall story was. And so when I say sometimes they didn't even know what the story was, I think that that exercise really um, starts to illuminate that because there's events that have happened that ha either people have maybe forgotten or didn't know as part of the group, maybe didn't know that that had happened. And it starts to give um, a bigger picture of what the impact um, on individual lives has been and how that's molded the overall story. I love that so much. Yeah. Two, two final, very quick questions for you. One, what book have you read that has most inspired your creativity and your work? Wow. You asked me a hard question. <laughs> There's so many. Um, you can name more than one. If you okay. Like. So the, I'll actually name the most recent one that I read. Um, it's called um, Design Thinking, and that's Tim Brown. And that's actually when you guys asked me about kind of how to think about 
how I thought about man the, the dichotomy with management and creativity. I think that's a great one, especially for the, let's say, freelancer who's trying <laughs> to um, do spend more time doing creative stuff than maybe uh, management. But that was one that really reshaped um, how I thought about leadership and also how I thought about um, how you can think about process and implementation in a way that's creative that doesn't have to be thought of as like the spreadsheet approach to manage <laughs> to management. So I think that that was a great one. Um, the other one I would say is um, uh, more academic work, but when I was in grad school, it's by Peter Eisenman, which is, um, he's a very influential architect. He didn't necessarily build a ton of work, but just from a theory perspective, um, he was very influential. And um, so I read his dissertation as part of my thesis work and um, just his thoughts about design um, were really compelling because he's almost like a provocateur, like the guy who's saying, this is how we should think about architecture. And, but, in a way that it's like, okay, he's saying all of this, but he's not actually building very many <laughs> very many buildings. And I think part of that was because he was ahead of his time in, in how he was thinking about design and architecture. So when he's talking about this, if he was practicing, you know, if he was doing that kind of work now, it'd probably be a very different um, different outlook in terms of how much he actually constructed. Um, but I think that's that's always an interesting question when I think about architecture, too, um, is how do you measure the success of a truly provocative thinker in architecture? Is, is it by how many buildings they built? Because there's lots of architects who, you know, put U.S. banks up or, you know, uh, McDonald's and other types of just kind of um, stamp these template designs. And there's others that, you know, maybe only build one thing in their entire career, but just their approach to think that how you think about design and architecture is so compelling that they kind of find a place in history that it didn't matter that they only built one building, you know, and they'll be probably be remembered <laughs> for a lot longer. So, um, but those are probably two books that are the two exact um, extremes that we talked about. <laughs> so one that talks so much more about kind of the process management team approach, design thinking um, and creative processing versus like a very avant-garde um, approach to how design should look or sure. be th thought about. So, yeah. Sure. So there's storytelling and there is architecture and design. Those are two worlds that you're very involved in and you combine them regularly. Mm -hmm. I have to know before we, we finish – how often do you watch HGTV? Oh, boy. To be honest with you, never. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for anyone. It's basically stories about architecture and design, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> H well, to first off, I don't own a television, just okay. so you guys know. Um, I don't own television. Um, Was that an intentional choice or did that just kind of work out that way? Yeah. Totally intentional. You know, my husband and I were like, right when we got married, we're like, we're not going to have a TV. It doesn't mean we don't watch certain shows, but if we do anything, it's it's like a streaming from the internet. So we don't have cable. We don't um, watch television. So I wouldn't have HGTV even if I wanted it. But 
Um, my opinion on HGTV, if I had to think about this, I might be able to be swayed either way. But my first thought is it really boils design down to the most basic commoditized version of what design could be. So that's my initial sometimes gut reaction to it. But on the flip side, I think what I don't think design needs to be is so elitist or highbrow that it's not accessible. Um, so I appreciate what HGTV can be in terms of really being creating um, a platform where design can be accessible to a lot of people. So I'm kind of like, you know, riding the fence on which side I think, <laughs> you know, I would fall on. I think I like to be right in the middle, though, where I think it could go. <laughs> I think it's great that it makes design accessible. I think um, it does bring into question um, the commodity of it, and I think it can start to lend itself to that discussion of consumption um, where, you know, design becomes about a, potentially um, a high level of consumption and a high turnover on like, oh, I don't like this anymore, let's do it this way. Oh, I don't like this anymore, let's do it this way. So that's kind of my two cents on HGTV. <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> Thanks so much for talking yeah. to us about this. This is really, really important. And uh, you know, we, we obviously at Story believe that stories matter. And I think you guys are right that every space tells a story. So that means our spaces matter too, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So I say keep doing what you're doing. You guys are doing awesome work. Oh, thank you. So what I haven't mentioned yet is that Danae is actually speaking at Story 2018, our upcoming conference in Nashville this September 20th and 21st. It's going to be incredible. I'm so excited for you to meet her and hear more of her story. If you haven't bought your ticket yet, prices go up next week. That's right. Ticket prices go up on Friday, June 1st. So now's your chance to save a bunch of money. Head on over to story2018.com and make sure that you get in at the lowest price possible. I cannot wait to see you there. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening to the Story Podcast. <laughs>